Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 49th of the Tech Stories today. My guest is Susie Berenson. Did I pronounce it right, Susie? Yes, that was very excellent. Thank you. Susie, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Susie is a tax law and human rights researcher from uh, Denmark. She holds a PhD in international tax law and economics. Uh, She recently published her book on the effectiveness of uh, general anti-avoidance rules. We Mm -hmm. will talk about that as well. And Susie has worked for uh, five years uh, for one of the big four companies and now is also a Nordic tax manager at uh, a large multinational company. She's lecturing at Vienna and Copenhagen universities. Anything else important you would like to mention about yourself? No, that's uh, that's more or less sums it up. So at the moment, I'm uh, yeah, I'm the Nordic head of tax at at a company, and uh, mm-hmm. on the sidelines as a researcher, I'm also finalizing my habilitation on on taxpayers' rights. So uh, that's Mm. more or less what I spend my time on. Okay, so it uh, broadens the scope of the topics we could talk about today. (laughs) Absolutely. uh, But before that, uh, on a personal note, I saw that you have mountains on your uh, LinkedIn profile. Uh, I've never done uh, hiking. Uh, When I think of it, a Depeche Mode song, uh, Enjoy the Silence, comes to my mind. (laughs) Is uh, hiking your hideaway from everything else? Uh, no, extreme triathlon is my hideaway. I compete in the World Series of uh, of extreme triathlon, so it's basically like Ironman. It's just usually a little bit longer, and then the extreme part is the fact that everything takes place in the mountains. So a lot of climbing, a lot of descending, um, a lot of really bad weather that comes with the with the territory. Wow, wow. Uh, how how long is it uh, approximately? Just to well, it's to... Uh, you swim just short of four kilometers. Um, because of everything being in the mountains, it's a very long day compared to a traditional Ironman in the city. So we usually start very early in the morning at five o'clock. Uh, so we start in the dark. We swim in the dark, somewhere mm. really cold. <laughs> Um, and then you get on your bike and ride somewhere between 180 and 205 kilometers in the mountains. Wow. And then you finish that off with a marathon at the end, also in the mountains. So for me, a day like that usually takes around somewhere between 17 and 19 hours. So, yeah, it's a very long day. Wow, that's impressive. How did you come to such hobby? <laughs> well, I actually, I got really tired of, uh, I only did one traditional Ironman in Copenhagen uh, many years ago, and I quickly got really tired of all the middle-aged men, uh, tax partners <laughs> in uh, in Likra, uh, who has to do an Ironman to put it on their resumes and to get clients. Uh, and that's all very cool. But then they sit back on the couch. So I, uh, I had enough of those. And then I discovered extreme triathlon. So it's in really rough nature, which also means that they're only allowed to have 200 competitors roughly per race uh, because of safety. Um, mm. So very small group. Everybody is completely insane. Uh, 
<laughs> obviously. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, very nice people. It's not at all about the glory. It's just about the rough nature and this insane challenge. So that's my um, that's my happy place. Mm. So it's the process you enjoy of, of doing yeah. this. Yeah. It's this extreme endurance that, yeah, you really have to be incredibly stubborn to, to do it. It's physical, but it's also very much mental that you have to be able to handle extreme pressure and not to crack. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in a way, it's a, it's a lot like tax law, just <laughs> just in nature, you know. Is it dangerous as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, we for these races, you have to have a support team with you. Uh, so you need a car accompanying you at all times. Um, a little bit like the, the race cars in the Tour de France, for example. Um, so it is very dangerous, yes. Uh, and it is not for everybody, obviously, mm. <laughs> because it takes a toll on the body and the, on the mind. So, But they take really good care of us. So. Wow. How do you prepare for that? So do you have practice every second day? Um, Every day, basically. Uh, One day a week off. uh, And then I'm just, I'm really boring. So. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Mostly just taxlon, extreme triathlon. So, So, yeah. So so to to inspire the other listeners, uh, what is the routine of uh, the day? When do you find uh, time for uh, practicing this? Well, I, when I can get away with it, I, I like to train in the mornings. So I like to get up at very early four or five and and do training before I go to the office. Um, and then I have to because I have a lot of travel days. So when I'm traveling, I bring my running gear and then I plan to to have my run trainings there. And of course, swimming and biking is a little bit different. I travel a lot with my bike as well. Mm. <laughs> so uh, I it's a good way to also to interact with peers and clients. There are quite a few people in, in tax law who are biking and running, especially. So I, uh, I think there are quite a few tax people who've been uh, out racing with me on my bike, which is, I really like that. So um, hmm. I do try to bring it when I can. The only tax person I know uh, doing triathlon, uh, not such extreme, is in Switzerland. So yeah. I, can, <laughs> I, I can put you through it for, Sounds good. for a company. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, great. Uh, wow, this is impressive stuff. I, uh, I, I think people will find uh, truly inspiring and um, We'll find some time to do some more exercise, uh, even if it's not for Ironman purposes. <laughs> but um, on another topic, um, as a linguistics officer trainee in the Arabic language, you also learned the history and politics of the Middle East. And uh, yeah. with all the military conflicts now in Israel and, and, and also uh, not far away in Ukraine, what's your impression where the world is moving to? Yeah, so coming from a military background, and before that, I was I was with the Red Cross. Um, so I actually became a lawyer because I wanted to be a lawyer in the army. So a, a judge advocate general, that was my plan since ninth grade. Mm. So um, I did the whole, studied a year in France and Strasbourg and learned human rights and EU law. 
on a very very high level <laughs> worked uh, worked there at the institutions and I I then moved to the Red Cross and worked there for a few years in the Middle East uh, in Balkan um, working with the rules of war basically and then I switched to the army actually while I was I was still in law school so I was a terrible law student I did all things I wasn't supposed to do um, <laughs> But it was a very unique experience. And when I was in the army, I was trained by Israeli soldiers as well. Uh, we had a lot of collaborations around the world. I also, before that in my career, when I was in the Middle East uh, with the Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement, I was uh, in Jordan for a long time, working with the refugee camps, uh, which back then and still holds a lot of Palestinian refugees. Uh, so I worked really closely with both the, the Palestinian, the Syrian and, and the Jordanian Red Crescent movement and also with the, with the Israeli Magan David Adam. So I probably have a very, uh, let's say a very broad and, and very unique perspective on, on everything that's going on. Um, Obviously, both from a humanitarian point of view and, and as a soldier and, well, to me, uh, no matter what conflict we're talking about, uh, no matter what side we're looking at, uh, the most devastating thing is, is the loss of all the civilians. And unfortunately, that hasn't changed at all since I worked in that business. Um, I'm still part of the reserve, so um, <laughs> if... Uh, if the situation becomes dangerous enough that Denmark feels threatened, then I will no longer be a tax lawyer. Mm. Uh, that's not by obligation, that's by choice, uh, because once a soldier, always a soldier. So that's uh, perhaps a little bit unique for me. Um, and also, obviously, in recent years, I mean, the new members of NATO are, are neighbors of Denmark and let's say we feel the conflict in Ukraine very closely in the sense that, well, on a regular basis, we have Russian fighter jets flying over Copenhagen. We have Russian submarines um, in the waters around the Danish coasts. And we have a very, very close connection to the Baltic countries, uh, historically speaking. Uh, that's something we've prioritized and we're really happy about that. So, of course, that also means that while the conflict is not in our backyard, it is in Sweden's backyard and it is in Finland's backyard and it is in the backyard of the Baltics. So it's only it's only one degree of separation. <laughs> so we feel that very closely. Um, and uh, for that conflict, I speak the wrong language. But uh, now, as the world is looking at the moment, yes, I, I read the news differently. Of course I do. Um, and when I drink my morning coffee, I <laughs> I don't really read the Danish news. I read the Arabic news. I read Al Jazeera. Um, yeah, try to, to keep up with, with what is happening. I understand uh, it's a very difficult topic for you to, to, to discuss, but uh, do you see uh, anything resolving soon or is it like for many years to come? I wish I could say that, but 
Uh, speaking from experience, no. I uh, I think if there's one thing which is uh, a general tendency in the world at the moment, no matter what conflict we're looking at, is that every step forward would take two steps back. So there are some very extreme powers at play. Uh, that's and that's basically everywhere, and that has a lot of bad influences. Um, mm. A lot of people with too much power and too much desire for more power. And again, no matter what conflict we're looking at, I think the mm. the amount of of civilian losses we're seeing at the moment is extraordinary high. Okay, let's uh, switch topics. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, tell me about your brother, Jesper. Uh, you wrote uh, in the book that he was your inspira- inspiration to learn. <laughs> so that's true. That? I uh, I dedicated my my PhD to my brother. Um, he basically raised me. He's he's much older than me. He's uh, 17 years older than me. Um, mm. And as a kid growing up, he was uh, yeah he was this uh, badass mechanic and the the very large cargo ships. He was working for Mask. So he would sail all over the world, uh, and he never grasped the concept of different time zones. So he would call at at all hours a day, uh, and he had no. Well, he he raised me in many ways, and he had no idea what he was doing. Basically, he never raised me as a girl. Mm. <laughs> he, uh, I think he's partly to blame for my desire to become a lawyer in the army, uh, because we would watch army shows together. We would. Uh, we would go on extreme hikes. We would go on extremely long bike rides together, even when I was small. Um, and uh, he was a very good influence uh, because he forgot to teach me how to do girly stuff. He forgot to teach me how to be a nice girl and a good housewife. So um, when I grew up, I didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't want to become a princess or something like that. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to be an Air Force pilot. <laughs> <laughs> so I would run around and ride my little tripod bike um, for years, basically, because I saw on television that you had to be really strong and really fast to become an Air Force pilot. And at some point he had to break my heart, the poor guy, and tell me that actually they didn't even allow women to try for the test outs for becoming an Air Force pilot. That Mm. is, and I still, I was very small, but I still remember how confused I was about that. Him telling me that there was something that I couldn't do because I was a girl. I thought that was incredibly stupid. Uh, I still think it is. Luckily, now you can actually become an Air Force pilot as a woman in Denmark. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that how you become uh, a human rights uh, expert? Uh, I think the human rights sort of snuck in with the international humanitarian law and the army perspective. Mm. Um so I, I blame my time in Strasbourg for that. Um, that was absolutely fantastic to study there and, and be so close to the European Court of Human Rights. So that's that's definitely where that comes from. And of course, if you work seriously with the rules of war, you also have to be quite specialized in human rights because there is a yeah a common platform there. Mm. Writing a book actually takes uh, quite a lot of time, of course. Uh, what, what's your routine of writing the book? Well, uh, <laughs> 
my PhD, I when I did it, I was also working at PwC. So um, a long days and uh, Basically, when I really have to write something seriously, and I still do that, I go to Amsterdam and I mm. hide at the IBFD. <laughs> <laughs> so I sit in their library and uh, then I have all the books and I have super bright people around me who I can ask about anything. And that's really my my tax law Narnia. Yeah. I've I've been to IBFD premises. They're really yeah. comfortable. Very comfortable. Um, and at some point you switched from uh, Big Four to academia. So what what was your sort of vision behind that? Well, I so after my PhD, I I won this two year grant um, to to just focus on on tax law and human rights which was really a privilege to be able to try that, how that felt full time. Uh, I like that a lot as well, but um, at least at the time, being a full time academic was, it was nice to try it out, but I felt I wasn't quite done with learning from practice, um, which is why I, I switched to, yeah, to being in-house basically. So I'm a I'm a terrible tax consultant because as a tax consultant you have to you have to be very good at walking in line um, and walk like a dog and quack like a dog and I'm not I'm good at many things um, but I'm horrible at making slideshows and even worse at walking in line so. What do you mean by working line? <laughs> walking in line, well, basically, you know, if you work at a big four corporation or a big law firm for that matter, you know, there's a certain mold that you have to fit into. Um, mm -hmm. And, well, I like doing extreme triathlons. I I used to be in the army. I don't really tick the boxes. So... Mm. I think differently. I do things differently. Um, <laughs> I see authority differently. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's. Um, I absolutely loved a lot of the work. I was super privileged to have really exciting tasks, and my colleagues were really bright people, uh, very nice people. So it was never really about that. But yeah, when you've done a certain amount of tasks on the same topic it just uh, yeah <laughs> basically working in-house you have more freedom so you feel uh, I think the difference one thing I really loved about being at a big four company and I was in the international tax department so a lot of my clients were big multinationals and what I really liked about those tasks was being so close to the head of tax or the head of finance, whoever we were working for, and actually being very close to the business. Um, so that was why I went in-house, because I thought that would be a nice way to make tax law very real. Um, mm. And I missed that. And I'm definitely getting my money's worth. <laughs> That's, uh, and it is, I mean... One of the favorite parts of my job is is going to the well to the production sites and to talk to the people who 
who actually run the business. Uh, that's also a really big part of the job when you're managing the taxes to make sure that because it's easy to uh, get information into the tax department and then we describe it and pass it on and we don't necessarily have any idea what we're talking about because we're basically a back office function. Um, so it's important to go and talk to the people who are actually getting their hands dirty um, and who are actually running the business. Um, because if you have a tax audit or if you want to be compliant, well, then you actually also need to know how your business work. And I love that but, part of it. <laughs> and speaking of being an in-house uh, large multinational, uh, do, do you see some uh, sort of development if we look at the past, present and future of uh, being an in-house? How has the role evolved? That's a very good question. I think uh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, everybody was focused on effective tax rates. <laughs> now the game is much more complicated. You have to know a lot more. Um, and you it's not just enough that you have the excellent advisors who tell you everything. You always have to be one step ahead um, and have to think very specifically, even if you have an old school production facility. So you may not on the surface at least get hit by a lot of the new initiatives and the new ways to change the, the international taxation system. But I think very often when you then scratch the surface, you realize, well, it still hits you in some way or the other. Um, because if the company is big enough, well, then it's also complex enough that that this will become your, your problem at some point. So one thing I really enjoy is we have these networks among us uh, in Denmark, for example. Um, so those of us who are head of tax at, at the larger companies in Denmark. Um, we use each other a lot. We use our each other's experience a lot. Um, and that's really, really valuable. How do you see the future role of the in-house? Uh, do, do you, <laughs> do you uh, have any predictions? I think that the in-house tax departments are only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think one area where going forward, we really see an increase in is in terms of, well, the, the in-house people handling the disputes basically. And so everything is becoming, becoming more international and, and cross-border and figuring out, I mean, 10 years ago, if you had a transfer pricing audit, <laughs> and you speak to the head of accounting and they will say, well, it doesn't really matter for the books because then you pay more tax in one country and then you just pay less tax in another country and mm. we do some kind of mutual agreement procedure. Today it's a whole different game um, because there is much more discussion about the allocation of taxing rights. It's much more complicated. And we also have new tools in terms of alternative dispute resolution. We have arbitration coming in. And I think that at least from, especially from a Danish perspective, that is a little bit novel to us. So I think in 10 years, every multinational will need a, 
ahead of, of dispute resolution as well as a head yeah. of tax. <laughs> Is somehow technology or AI already helping your daily tasks? Uh, in some ways, uh, I think perhaps that's more for the let's say more technological heavy companies. Um, I'm a, for me, it's a little bit. I see the potential. I always, I also think it's a little bit the emperor's new clothes. So. <laughs> Let's take Pillar 2 as an example. I've seen many, many wonderful proposals from all big four companies, all the big advisory firms, and they always have some kind of wonderful solution. Um, not that I've been offered it in, in my role as in-house, but I just observe that, that they're all working on, on their individual toys to, <laughs> to map all of your activities and, and to comply with Pillar 2. And every time I see those toys, I think it is a little bit the emperor's new clothes. It has potential, sure, but basically what you've built is some kind of SAP system with a dashboard. Mm. <laughs> and kudos to them for, for making money on that. Uh, I'm wildly impressed by how people can can manage to, to produce large sales off of it. But I think what it really speaks to is not just the creativity of the advisory firms, um, but also the level of complexity that we're dealing with today and the fact that I think very few people really fully grasp all of the new rules which we're being hit by. I also use some technology while preparing for this interview and I asked uh, <laughs> ChatGPT to select a question specifically for you, Susie, and uh, <laughs> specifically for uh, Tax Stories podcast. Wow. Uh, and uh, I selected uh, the one uh, question I like the most. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think uh, tax professionals can better engage with the public to demystify taxation and promote better understanding? <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. Um, so the last two years, uh, something I've spent a lot of time on is actually being in the newspapers as a so-called tax expert. Um, mm. So whenever there is a big tax case from the Danish Supreme Court or the European Court of Justice, uh, there's actually a lot of interest from the media. And uh, I know to a lot of tax experts that can be annoying, uh, but I actually think it's a very good sign that first of all, the public is interested. Um, I think if the public hadn't been so interested following the financial crisis, well, we wouldn't have had any of the international overhauls we've had of our, of our tax systems. And I also think it is, at least in my experience, the journalists I speak to, I am wildly fascinated about how excellent they are at understanding the rules and also describing and telling it in a way that everybody can understand. Mm -hmm. So that's something I think is really important. And uh, I would like to encourage all of my fellow peers, <laughs> if a journalist called, maybe don't be so afraid to say something wrong or to say something that's of course, we all work at corporations and we have to be careful about what hats we're wearing. But 
at the end of the day, well, a lot of it boils down to simple interpretation of rules. And I think that's really important to to participate in. Good advice. Let's talk about uh, your book. Uh, would you do a sales pitch of your book? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So uh, it is my PhD. It's been rewritten um, and changed a little bit also to to better, you know, better suit the needs of, of people working in practice. So it has a very nice overview of if you're focusing on general anti-avoidance rules, how they came to exist and what are the, well, what are the strengths and what are the pitfalls? Uh, and also a very nice overview of the relevant case law. So basically a very good starting point, uh, no matter if we're looking at a European or global tax perspective, to to figure out where to look further for whatever you can use to support your case. Mm. Uh, how do you come to this topic and uh, what were your revelations during the research? <laughs> well, when I started my the thoughts for my PhD, I was actually I was in my first tax job. I was working for the Minister of Taxation in Denmark. Mm. In Denmark tax is such a tough topic that we don't just leave it up to the Minister of Finance. We have a specific ministry for it. Uh, so I was working there, basically writing the tax legislation and yeah, supporting the minister along with a lot of excellent colleagues. So I was very, and at the time Denmark did not have a general anti-abuse provision, but we had started the discussions as to whether or not we should get one. And of course, this So this was 2013-14, so yeah, we were just about to to get the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive and the Principal Purposes Test, and the Danish beneficial ownership cases uh, went before the European Court of Justice a few years later, so a lot of exciting things going on, and a lot of debates also in Denmark about how to to proceed with these rules. And for me, it was really fascinating to have this new weapon that we weren't used to having. And I started wondering whether or not it was actually a good idea. So that was where the interest started. And I, by coincidence, I got to speak to a very renowned Danish professor. And I asked him and said, what is your view on this? Uh, do you think it's a good idea? Does it work like it's supposed to? And he he encouraged me to uh, to write a PhD on it. Um, and because I was working at the ministry and I was working with drafting the tax legislation, if you've ever done that, you'll know that nothing gets passed unless it has some nice economic consequences. <laughs> so I was very used to working closely with the economists um, and, and working with the economic aspect as well of, of tax law. So I thought in order to properly assess, well, are the rules actually a good idea? I had to look at it both from a legal and economic perspective. Uh, and then I, of course, realized how little I knew about economics. <laughs> uh, and I was lucky that I got to team up with um, some very excellent tax economists. So uh, they, I could not have done 
this project without them. So um, yeah, that, that has really been uh, been a blessing. I just returned a couple of weeks ago from IFA Congress in Cancun, and uh, there, there was uh, I remember there was a nice slide uh, in one of the presentations that people in tax uh, now have to master so many concepts regarding this economic substance, this per principal purpose test, beneficial ownership, uh, general GAR, SAR, CFC. How businesses can comply with all, all, the, all those <laughs> principles? It's, a, it's actually a good question. And it was something I I also tried to focus on in my PhD, also learning from, from the very excellent economists I work with, because I think the Danish beneficial ownership cases are probably the best example. When they came out and from the European Court of Justice and the court handed us this list of what was considered abusive structures um, and abusive business. Um, I think all the tax lawyers were pretty confused and we pulled our hair and said, oh no, this is not from the previous case law. Where did they get this? And then I spoke to the economists and they said, well, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> So I thought, okay, this is this is interesting. This is something we can work with. Um, so with the help of them, I, I found uh, some economic theory, uh, which fit very well to, to what we were working with. So basically, there is a whole science dedicated to how groups and companies act in the free markets and in within a, a control structure. That's not really surprising, especially if you work with transpricing. That uh, sounds like old hat. Um, but to me, it was a little bit fascinating to see that there was, you know, years and decades of theory behind this. And that was quite useful. Um, so essentially, if you boil it down, it's not really about substance, it's about control. And it's about the level of control a company has within a group and within the markets and what can affect that. So looking at it with those classes, it did make very good sense. Um, I'm not saying I purely like the argumentation of the European Court of Justice. Um, and I think what they've basically done is, is take the argumentation from the Danish Ministry of Taxation. But uh, it does actually make sense. And I think also, again, looking at transfer pricing, it's a good example. When I was at Big Four, we used to tease the transfer pricing department a bit and say, well, you only have to know two sections, basically. <laughs> Which, in a way, is true, but then you have all the case law and you have basically all the economic theory that you need to apply. Um, and that is not going to get any less. The more influence we have from the OECD, well, the more influence we will have from economic theory. I'm sure of that. Mm. And, and doing the research, and uh, you have also different cases in uh, the book. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what's your feeling uh, about the current state of play of uh, companies? Is it uh, more companies trying to find substance to their structures or or there is substance and uh, and actually there is maybe tax law interfering to this too much i actually think that you know the idea of getting out of an 
potentially abusive tax situation by buying substance. Yeah, sure, there's still a few uh, EU countries where you have some kind of safe harbor rules or something where you can where you can do that. But I think it actually disappeared even before we got the rulings, even before we got the general anti-abuse provisions. So this shifts away from buying substance and and focusing more on control. I think that has been going on for a long time. And then, of course, the tax authorities have some very nice tools um, from the rulings and from the new provisions. I think what is left in the development is the taxpayers. I think since 2019, especially, we've been a bit shell-shocked. So our ears are still ringing um, and we're not quite confident enough that we can take those rulings and those developments and use them to our own benefits. And I think that's going to be the next step because now we have a lot of uncertainty. We have a lot of different notions getting mixed up. And what is necessary is that some taxpayers, you know, prioritize that battle and say, okay, we need to draw the line somewhere. We need to push back. And we need to, we also need to adjust to defending our tax position in a different way because we used to focus on all the tax reasons and now we're, we have to change our game and focus on the non-tax reasons, which is a little bit ironic. Um, but again, going back to my point about being very close to the business you work with, be it as an advisor, being in-house, whatever it is, well, that's that's become a very, very crucial part of your tax job. And mm-hmm. I think that's fine, actually. I think it's good and I think it's healthy. And I think in the long run, we will see now a tendency that things are going to move in the other direction. So the tax administration will not in five years just be able to very easily shift the burden of proof, shift the onus to the taxpayer. I think they're going to get a more hard run for their money. Um, And at least I hope so, because, well, if all multinationals and if all advisors just refrain from doing anything because of fear of the potential tax retributional effects, well, then the rules also have a deterrent effect. And that's that's not good. Mm. And um, finally, on this topic, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times those uh, Danish beneficial ownership cases. Uh, uh, what What is your... Uh, uh, considering everything else happening, there are many uh, other cases throughout Europe and uh, and uh, there is this Shell directive maybe coming or maybe not, uh, but uh, <laughs> what is the future of holding companies in general? Do you, do you, do you think uh, something materially will change in uh, the traditional holding jurisdictions like uh, Netherlands, Luxembourg, uh, Cyprus, Malta? I think to a certain extent it will, uh, not because of behavior by the taxpayers, but because in a not too distant future, uh, we will also have to talk about tax competition between the states. Because I think, to be honest, we're reaching a point where we can no longer force any more rules and any more limitations on the taxpayers. 
and the states are still allowed to compete for revenue. And that's a little bit ironic, especially within the European Union. You're still allowed to not demand a withholding tax at source. Some countries uh, have, you know, generated a lot of foreign investment into their countries by by having those rules. And we are, I mean, withholding taxes being an example also of, of something which is in nature and inherently, well, it's not applied evenly to domestic and, and foreign cooperation. At the moment, yes, it's the only tool uh, a member state has of, of getting their hands on, on money from a foreign corporation. But we see a very large increase in measures to for cross-border assistance. And there's a lot of arguments to be made that we shouldn't even be able to withhold tax at source within the European Union anymore because it is discriminatory in nature. If we move down that direction, and there have been some, <laughs> some first steps at least, well, then we also have to talk about are states allowed to compete between each other? Uh, to a certain extent, they're not, because then it's, uh, then it's state aid. But what we also really need to look at is if we do these, well, not harmonizations perhaps, but at least streamlinings of the rule, well, why are you still allowed to have selectivity and some things so key as a withholding tax, for example? So I think that is going to be one of the new developments we'll see, maybe not just in the European Union, but at some point also globally. Because mm -hmm. if you look at where foreign investment is directed, well, that of course also depends on the conditions in the double tax treaties. So. It's a market and a sub-market, but yeah, the idea is basically the same. If you want to eliminate tax competition, you also have to create a level playing field. Continuing on this withholding tax issue, uh, there, there has been uh, some other fraud in uh, Denmark uh, regarding withholding tax where all the tax world yes. was, was watching uh, what, what will happen with that. Do you see... Uh, technically, this foster directive uh, resolving the issues? Uh, no, I actually don't. Uh, and to be brutally honest with you, those cases in Denmark, sure, they're a sign that the rules for withholding taxes are a little bit outdated and the system is a bit outdated because the system is not really geared for an economy which is so global uh, and so mobile as the one we have now. But what is really a symptom of is the consequence you get when you cut back too heavily on your tax control resources in a country. Because those cases in Denmark, um, well, they're a very clear example that if you don't have sufficient resources, in the tax agency to control everything. Some of those cases, well, you can blame the employees, but in theory, what they would, I think the, the worst examples they found were people who would, in theory, have to look at 300 cases during a workday and control 300 cases in a workday. That, that's not possible. Hmm. So that's not the fault of the employees. I think in general, I know I'm biased because I used to work at the ministry, but 
I would say tax professionals working for the state in Denmark are really, really good at their job in general. They're excellent people. Um, they make an effort. And it's not their fault. But if you're severely understaffed, nope, of course you don't have an efficient control. So I think in a way, if we should change something in that regard, really efficient, then we should make it mandatory that when you have new and complex tax legislation enforced, well, then you also need to upgrade the number of resources allocated to controlling them. And I think that's pretty heartbreaking to see that if you look at the, let's take Pillar 2 as an example, most of the EU countries now have some kind of also domestic proposal. And when you look at the, the, no matter where you are, they always describe what will be the cost of implementing these rules. And none of them really describe a large increase in cost for extra personnel to handle this. It just falls on, on the existing employees. And to me, that is absolutely crazy. Mm. If you ask any big advisory firm, hey, are you upgrading? Are you hiring people with a specific knowledge of this? I'm sure they'll say yes. And if not, they're training existing people and hiring. In, you know, Everybody is, is reinforcing, but not the tax authorities. And then what's the point? of introducing new rules if you're not going to give them a chance to actually reinforce it and actually do a proper job. Because if you don't have the time to do a proper job, well, <laughs> we all lose. So mm. Continuing a little bit on this pillar too, uh, considering your profile, what's your take on this, uh, all the big scandals in the news, uh, Paradise Paper, Panama. <laughs> Will Pillar 2 change uh, the state of play regarding, and is that uh, just the tip of the iceberg? I I have to be honest and say, I don't think Pillar 2 is such in itself is going to dramatically change anything. <laughs> yes, it's going to increase the, the number of uh, advisory fee. That's it. Um, I am really, I don't see to me, you have a very, very complex set of rules, which in themselves are creating a very artificial environment. In a way, they're similar to, to transfer pricing rules in that sense, because, well, what you do, you, you, me you try to measure an illusion, basically. I think this is also an illusion. You can tell very large multinational groups and taxpayers in general that, yes, you have to pay a certain percentage of tax in all of the countries and you have to distribute it like this. Does that mean they're ever going to be able to do that in practice? No, <laughs> it does not. <laughs> of course not. And I think one thing that Pillar 2 really underestimates is the fact that Yes, taxes play a role in where business is conducted and where value is created, but it is just one factor. Um, and a lot of different things are at play. I mean, if you're a huge production facility, uh, you can have all kinds of ambitions to move your entire production to a different part of the world. Does that mean you have enough engineers or doctors or whatever it is you need in that part of the world? No, of course it doesn't. So 
I mean, the more old school the business is, well, the more fixed they also are in a way. And I think ironically, pillar two, well, it's going to be very difficult for, for the proposal to affect those businesses. I don't see it happening in practice. One of our uh, peers uh, described it very excellently and said, yes, you can tell me to jump out of the plane and flap my wings, but that doesn't mean I'm going to fly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think that's that's very telling of, of Pillar 2. Yes, you can write the rules, you can enforce them in all the countries and all the taxpayers, uh, but I want to see the, the revenue effects before I believe them. <laughs> And it all boils down to some anxiety, some mental health issues uh, regarding everything what is happening right now in the world. Uh, Let's say, let's take the latest news about the Apple case where basically uh, the the, the final decision hopefully will be next year at the, the European courts, but but now we see that uh, it's it's again uh, a, a new wave of uh, discussions about uh, is it is it state aid that uh, uh, Apple has been paying one percent effective uh, corporate tax rate and uh, and uh, look at the Italy which is uh, now considering if uh, data supply by Facebook has been uh, supply for of which VAT had to be charged so. Um, Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it, I cannot imagine how companies and and uh, and tax professionals within the companies can can cope with the, all those risks. It's it's a nightmare. It is a nightmare, and and you are expected to have a crystal ball and to be able to yeah. foresee the future. Uh, no one is. I, I think one thing that's really important to remember about taxes is that. You know, you have an advantage until it's taken away from you. Mm. And that's true about everything. It's true about the general rules and the specific rules. And, you know, you uh, you have to not plan too far ahead because you don't know what the future will hold. Yeah. But then uh, the final question is, is there a sort of some solution how to fix this all <laughs> because I think nobody knows. Nobody knows. I think what would be ideal tax system, let's say. How to what would you do if you if you were uh, like Minister of Finance of Denmark? I would bring it more up to speed what what with what the world actually looks like. And I know that that is what we're trying to do with Pillar 2. Um but I would, and that's not just because I'm working on the taxpayer side now, but I would look more closely at how to minimize tax competition between the countries. Um, and I would actually start there and say, now we have enough rules and we have enough tools for the tax authorities. How do we make sure that they have the skills and the means to use them? And how do we make sure that the states don't cannibalize each other, especially within the internal market of the European Union, because then we would have a much more level playing field. And you can make the same argument at the OECD level. Yes, we have international overhauls, we have Pillar 2, we have very nice ambitions with the inclusive framework. And I fully agree, the more countries that participate, the better. 
But then we also need to have a very real and candid conversation about, well, are these systems that we're setting up, are these overhauls we're doing, are they actually benefiting everybody or are they benefiting the D20, basically? Uh, and I think until we have that debate, I don't really have think we have any business of making these massive overhauls and imposing all of these constraints on the taxpayers because we don't fully know what we're doing. Susie, it's been a pleasure, but the uh, final question uh, is, is uh, actually the same as to every of my guests. <laughs> what, uh, what would be your... Uh, version of meaning of life in general. So I'm uh, very excited to hear your answer, especially considering your background you told about. <laughs> well, considering my background and considering somebody who has not just seen, but also had a career where you work with the very worst aspects of humans, you do that when you work with war. Uh, you realize what we're all capable of uh, when push comes to shove and you realize that you shouldn't take anything for granted. So uh, despite all of that, I still uh, <laughs> I still believe in the good in people. Um, I still believe that, well, whatever it is you're fighting for is, uh, is worth the battle. As long as you still enjoy a beautiful sunset and a beautiful sunrise, then yeah, keep going. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was uh, <laughs> such a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, and uh, dear listeners, uh, don't forget Susie Berenson, uh, The Effectiveness of General Anti-Avoidance Rules. You can buy it uh, at IBFD. So, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Anis. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it. You too. It was so nice seeing you. Thank you. you Bye-bye. <laughs>